King David's son Solomon built a house for the Lord. And Solomon spared no expenses. He imported expensive stone and timber, and he hired the best builders, best craftsmen, and best artisans that money can buy. There was high-quality gold everywhere, not to mention other expensive and intricate metalwork. And all the wares and implements for worship in the temple were likewise made out of an abundance of costly materials. And the temple was years in the making, but that project never wavered because the building of the temple, the house of the Lord, was backed by the king's unwavering vision and his bottomless coffers. And at last, the temple was complete. And came the day of dedication. And the day of dedication of the temple was a great day of celebration. But on that great and joyful day, we find King Solomon deep in thought, Solomon. And he wonders in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon truly was the wisest man that ever lived because he knew at that moment it, he had accomplished something amazing and marvelous. And yet he had the wisdom to recognize, but what is this that I have built? God, he dwells in the heavens. Not even the heavens can contain him. And this house, God is going to live here? And so he, Solomon, he, he becomes thoughtful and he humbles himself and he realized that he could never impress God or bribe God. Rather, he humbly asks for God's grace. And so in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 28, he says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. You see, that is Solomon at his wisest, recognizing that God is so high and exalted that even the most glorious house that he has built for the Lord wasn't good enough. And he humbles himself and he pleads with God, please hear my prayers. You know, that really is the mark of true faith and true religion. And the first question that this passage, Isaiah chapter 66, asks us is, are you wise? Are you wise? Notice how verses 1 and 2 say, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, by that he means the heavens and the earth, all these things my hand has made. 
And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And the question to ask is, why? Why do we need to hear this at this point in Isaiah? Why does the prophet choose to end his book, the very last chapter, with this statement? And as I thought about it, it occurred to me there are perhaps uh, three reasons that we can think about this morning. Uh, It may be that perhaps, you know, uh, these last few chapters, it's all been about God restoring the fortunes and the glories of Zion and how Jerusalem will once again be the crown uh, crown jewel in God's possession. And it may be that as some people heard Isaiah's prophecies about the restored Zion and the coming of the new heavens and the earth, they were thinking that David's kingdom will once again be established on earth and a new and glorious temple will be built on Zion once again. You know, in that case, they were thinking too small, weren't they? But it's fascinating to me that there are still people today who think this way, that a new temple will be built in Jerusalem, that it will be glorious. And it seems to me if that was the case, uh, this is the Lord indicating otherwise. Don't think you can build a new temple for me. What will you possibly do? Or... There may be a different reason, and the different reason may be that the monster of works righteousness is never really completely put to death in this world. And I say that because from the history of church and from our own experience, I think we all know this, that the message of grace can drive the message of works righteousness underground but it rises again in every generation. You know, we see that happening over and over throughout church history. In one era, God graciously proclaims to his people the message of grace, and people, hungry people, weary people, flock to it. And the next generation to come, they take that message for granted. They stray. And once again, there springs in the place of true gospel the message of works righteousness. And I think that scenario plays out in our personal lives too. Don't you feel this way when you realize your sinfulness? The first instinct in your heart is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. God's going to punish me. He is really upset with me. I need to get my life back together. I need to get my act straight. And when you think you're doing well, you feel really wonderful. See, God, this is who I really am. It's a monster that works righteousness. And it turns out that we are actually many chapters past chapter 53 where we read about the suffering servant. And long enough space and time has passed for us to start forgetting the message of God's grace. And so this may be uh, the Lord's gentle rebuke to those who are thinking that they can get on God's good side by doing fabulous things, wonderful things to impress God. And, you know, it's so sad because this mindset fits us 
like our favorite pair of jeans. It's so comfortable. It's our instinct. What's wrong with us? But you know, living by faith means, can I keep uh, milking that metaphor? Living by faith means taking off our old self and our old clothes and putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness. Living by faith means no longer thinking that we can impress God with our fabulous accomplishments, but rather trusting that Jesus has done it all, that in his righteousness, in his uh, place, we stand and God loves us and accepts us. And so these two reasons may be the reason why Isaiah says this, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But as I thought more about it, there seems to me probably the main reason why we need to hear this, why Isaiah's readers needed to hear it then and we need to hear it today. And the reason is entirely pastoral because when the troubles of the world are big, it's healing to remember that our God is so supremely high above the earth that the earth is nothing but his footstool. You see, God is not impressed with the greatest accomplishments of man because he is the creator of heaven and earth, and heaven cannot contain him, much less the earth. And earth is just a little pedestal placed before his cosmic throne. And we think we can impress him with anything that we do. So that God, that God who is and who cannot be impressed by anything that we do, is also the God who is never daunted by our biggest problems. You know, Israel's problems were so big, and there were many. And we have seen them throughout our studies. Well, what about you? Sure, your problems are different, but aren't they also big? Don't they also haunt and dominate your lives? And so it is healing for us to know and remember that God is the creator of heavens and the earth, and our biggest and our worst problems do not impress him. They do not befuddle him, and they do not leave God speechless. Our problems are never so big when we put them before his cosmic throne. And remember, the Lord who says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And loved ones, that's wisdom for you this morning and for me. Are you wise? Are you troubled in life? Here is wisdom for you. Your biggest problems, your worst situation, your God is not daunted by them. The second thing this passage teaches us is to how to catch God's eyes, how to catch God's eyes. 
because we cannot impress God with anything we do. And so the question is, if that is the case, how can we God to notice us? Is there anything that God, is there anything that catches his eyes? And the answer is yes. Notice what Isaiah says here. The Lord says through Isaiah, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, we think, you know, we tend to think this way. Uh, we think that God notices only the important people with an impressive resume. You know, and you may be feeling a little bit embarrassed and maybe perhaps useless and pointless when you compare your life to the great missionaries, for example, of the past who went to the jungle with nothing but Bible in their hands, who built great churches for God, who did wonderful, impressive things for God, and you wonder, boy, you know, those people, they deserve to be noticed. They were truly used by God, but what am I? What have I done? But what this passage tells us is that God does not notice important people with impressive resume, but God sees the humble. Humility is what catches his eyes. And I think we need to be careful that we do not over-spiritualize humility. Humility, of course, is a spiritual virtue and grace to know, uh, can I put it this way, our place before God. But the word, the Hebrew word for humility here, uh, the overwhelming meaning of the word and the overwhelming use of the word in Hebrew scripture means to be without property. That's what it means to be humble, to be without property, to be poor, to be wretched, and to be in a needy condition. You know, these are the very people that this world writes off as insignificant and worthless. But God's eyes are upon them. He looks upon them with love and compassion. He looks upon them with care. And likewise, the Lord says, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Being contrite in spirit is what catches God's eyes. And to be contrite in spirit means being broken. It means knowing what sin has done to them and knowing that they have no claim to God's blessing, but nevertheless come to God with empty hands asking for grace. That's what catches God's eyes. You see, when the world has written you off as worthless, as insignificant, as nothings, when you know yourself that you have nothing to offer God, that sin has broken you, and you come to God with empty hands to receive, and you ask God, please, Lord, Father, have mercy. That's the kind of people that God accepts. God cherishes. God notices. And the Lord says, God looks upon him who trembles at my word. 
To tremble at God's word means that taking care when they listen to God's word and respond to it with sensitivity in their heart, so to honor God's word. They are not casual listeners of God's word. Uh, they are not forgetful listeners of God's word. They listen attentively. Yes, I know we in our weakness and our frailty, we can't remember everything we learn from the Bible. But we stay attentive. We train our hearts and our minds to remember and that the things that the Lord teaches us, we honor and we put into practice. That's what it means to tremble at God's word. And the God, the God who is not impressed by outward appearance, knows our hearts. And that's why immediately following that statement, verses 3 and on, we read something really striking. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And that is meant to teach us that God knows the difference. He knows when we are merely play acting. We may be going through the motions of religion, but our hearts do not tremble at God's word. And when we are merely play-acting, he who slaughters an ox for sacrifice is as though like killing a man. And God sees that outward play-acting of obedience without a trembling heart as what it really is, which is a grotesque blasphemy and violence. And the Lord condemns it in verse 4. I will also choose harsh treatment for them. They did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So do you see, to, to tremble at God's word is not to venture out doing what pleases you. And it's not to do a merely outwardly speaking the things that appear faithful when your heart is far from the Lord. And so the Lord says, but those who are humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, to them God promises joy and blessing. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. And what follows is a long description, which next week, Lord willing, we will look at more in detail. But in a summary form today, we just need to realize that after verse 5, when the Lord says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word, what we see is a long description of the Lord blessing and causing to prosper and become fruitful those who tremble at God's word. Even though the world may mock and scorn them and reject them. And so verse 10, the Lord says, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. And he promises them peace. Verse 12. Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You know, that's so healing 
is such a healing balm to our troubled hearts because have you ever wondered and maybe doubted how can the great creator of heavens and the earth know much less care about my little troubles because earlier on I said our biggest troubles are nothing to him but it cuts both ways doesn't it because as soon as we say our biggest troubles are nothing before God, then the next question that may, that may pop up is, if they're nothing to God, does God even care? And so we wonder and we doubt. But the answer is that he knows and he cares because he is great. Because he looks upon those who, who are humble, who are contrite in spirit, who trembles at his word. And because he, the throne upon which he sits, that throne is the throne of grace. And that brings us this morning to the third and the last point. And it is an invitation for you. Come to the throne of grace. If you remember from your Old Testament readings, the Old Testament tabernacle and later the the, the the tabernacle that traveled with God in the wilderness was replaced by the temple. And both for the tabernacle and the temple, uh, its main function, the most important function, was to house uh, the mercy seat in its inner sanctum. In the holy of holies was placed the golden mercy seat where the Lord, the holy God, was present to meet sinners with grace. And in time, God sent another, a different, a better son of David, and he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus built a more beautiful temple than Solomon ever did. In fact, Jesus is both the temple and the temple builder. Jesus is also the throne of grace, and he is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And in Jesus, the humble and the contrite in spirit find a home. And in Jesus, you and I discover this wonderful truth. You and I we never need to try to impress God. When do you try to impress someone? When you're not sure of how they feel about you. When you feel like that they're distant from you. You never have to try to impress God because God, your Father, He is already well pleased with you. And that is why the Holy Spirit indwells you. Now think about what that means. Think about what the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in you means. You know, um, we all have them. We all have people that we don't get along with, don't we? And we try our best to avoid them. And if we can avoid them, we, we will not spend one extra minute than absolutely necessary with them. And that's what we 
do because we, we can't stand them. We, we don't like them. Yes, this is sinful, but I'm not the only one who feels that way, am I? <laughs> you know, there are people in our lives that's really hard to love. We just, you know, I'd rather not be there. So what can we make of the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells in us and never leaves us? What does that tell us about his attitude towards us? And if anything, the fact that the Holy Spirit of God and the Son has come to dwell in our hearts and never leave or forsake us, that tells us something about his heart, his attitude, in that we are to him never a burden. We are, to him, never the kinds of people he can barely stand to be around. But the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in us, that tells us that he delights in us. He is pleased to be with us. Or can I put it this way? He likes you. And he rejoices to make his home with you. You know, that is why you never have to try to impress God. He loves you. He delights in you. And so here is the invitation. Will you come to his throne of grace? He knows that you have many struggles. And some of them, some of them are really great and difficult challenges. The Lord knows that. But remember who sits on the throne. The one who sits on the throne is the creator of heavens and the earth. The one who sits upon the throne is Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. He loves you. He delights in you. And so let me ask you again. Do you still think your problems are too big? They are not to God. They are not too big to God. And they are not too big before his throne of grace. So loved ones, would you cast your burdens at the feet of the king who sits upon the throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us how great you are, that you are exalted over this world, that you sit upon the throne that is over all creation and all cosmos, and yet you, you are present in the lives and in the hearts of humble, broken, weary people. And so we come to you and we ask for your grace, for your help, and for your strength. Oh, Father, I pray for the precious saints in this room who carry many burdens. Would you enable them? Would you invite them to cast their burdens at your feet? 
and may they taste and experience your love and your comfort. For I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.